Praise the Lord, everybody. Can you feel the electricity in the air? Power and faith of God is demonstrated already. And there have been miracles, signs, and wonders already in our midst today. And we will hear testimonies of things that have already happened in the church service. Amen. I want to direct your attention right to the Word of God. The book of Genesis, chapter 29, begin reading at verse 10. It is my high, high honor to be here today at Regeneration service and of course to be here at rack with our great friends the waldens and um, so many ministers that we love and appreciate here not going to get into that trap that pastor went into we just love all of you guys Um, of course my wife uh, i will mention her that's never a problem mentioning her glad luscious is in the house today and judah's here as well glad judah's here amen Reading from Genesis 29, verse 10. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. That's a lot of mother's brother right there. And Jacob kissed Rachel. And lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. I'm preaching today under this title, First Love. First Love. If you can feel the love of God right now in your spirit, would you just thank Him for loving you? When we were unlovable, you loved me. When we were sinner far from grace, you reached, found us. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Amen, amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I refreshed myself over the past few months reading again this story to make it fresh in my mind and I don't know why I didn't remember it or never saw it quite this way. But when the scripture introduces Esau, it says he was a man of the earth. He was at birth red and hairy like a hairy garment. He was a man's man as a toddler. Esau was. And he loved the earth and hunting and perhaps fishing and the things that Men, many men like to get involved in. Knew that, of course. But when the scripture introduces Jacob, I've always kind of seen him as a little bit of a mama's boy. Nothing wrong with that. It's good to love your mama, right? A little bit of a mama's boy. And uh, 
maybe a little more fragile and also he had this deep character problem of being a conniver, a trickster. His name as he grabbed the heel of his brother coming out of his mother's womb, heel grabber, Jacob, supplanter. And that is to a small case. But the scripture says about Jacob that he was a plain man dwelling in tents. That don't sound very impressive as you just hear it in the English here. But the word plain here means he was complete, mature, in a pious or a religious or a spiritual way. And that he dwelt in a place of favor and anointing. So now when I begin to see Jacob in this story, I'm also seeing that Jacob didn't initiate a lot of the conniving. The birthright that he took from his brother was just a good trade for Jacob. (laughs) Not so good for Esau. And when Esau doesn't love spiritual things, and he doesn't love covenant things, it's easy for Jacob to put together a little bowl of red lentils or red beans. And when Esau comes from the field not having killed anything and no deer is slung over his back, he says, hey, I'll trade you a little bit of beans for your birthright. And Esau is so exhausted and tired, he thinks he's dying. And he says, if I fall down and die right here, what good is a birthright? Yeah, I'll trade you. No value for spiritual things. And this is not conniving. Indeed, this is a prophecy that was given to his mama, Rebecca. Before when she was in child and her belly swollen from twins and she feels the struggle and the fighting within her. She inquires of God, what is this that I'm dealing with? And the Lord tells her, there are two nations within your womb. And he begins to explain that they will be fighting at each other for the rest of their entire generations. And that one would be younger and the elder would serve the younger. So the prophecy of Jacob having a blessing and a birthright is spoken to his mama. And then as you read the story, we find that when the time comes that Isaac the father would bless his sons, it's mama, Rebecca, that goes to Jacob and says, Hey, let me make some food. You go put on some camel skin that looked like your brother, feels like your brother. And when you go to your father Isaac, you will... Fool him. And Jacob receives a blessing as well as the birthright. Now I want you to see that he's, he's not without fault and he's not without character problems for he lies to his father declaring that he is Esau. Directly lies to him. But now that Esau has come back from the fields and I hope you know the story I'm having to skip a lot for the place of where we're going. Esau comes back from the field and realizes that not only has Jacob, his brother, taken his birthright, but also now he has received the greatest blessing that his father is going to give to the sons. And he decides in his heart and his mind that his brother will not see another sunrise. He intends to kill, literally, his brother. And so, Mama again, Rebecca begins to do some moving and adjusting and she goes to Isaac and says, you know, I don't want our children to be marrying. Our sons should not marry the Canaanites here where we live. 
I think that they should marry back in my homeland, Haran, where Laban, my brother, is, where I came from. She makes it seem like it's Isaac's idea. Because when Isaac calls Jacob, he says, you will not marry Canaanite, you will go to Haran, and there you'll find Laban and marry one of his two daughters. One of his two daughters. One of his two daughters. And so Jacob is now leaving home in fear of Esau's sword. His father has commanded him to take a child or a daughter from a cousin would be the situation that it would be from his mother's brother's daughter's. And so Jacob is leaving now ahead of the sword and he's trying to find what I believe is a new start. He's got some problems in his past and he needs a brand new start. And the first day on this new start journey, he lays his head upon a rock and there in the nighttime, God begins to reveal a dream to Jacob. And a ladder extends from where he is and ascends all the way up into heavens. So that when Jacob awakes in the morning, he realizes the place where I have laid and slept is a, let me say it this way, it is a portal from which God connects with earth and which those on earth can connect to God. Indeed, this is why he called the place Bethel, house of God, which become a very important place in the scripture, Bethel, where God comes to earth, where earth receives God. And so now he gets up from a powerful experience where he has seen angels ascending this Jacob's ladder, as we call it, and descending from heaven and ascending back to heaven. And he gets up and realizes that he had no idea how powerful this place was, but he leaves and he still has some of the same character problems. I have described Jacob like this in the past, and I think to somehow it fits. He loved the things of God. But he struggled with some character. He's the kind of guy that would break the window of a car and steal a Bible. He would lie to you about coming to church with him so he could get you here, right? Yeah, he has some desires for things of the kingdom, but his character isn't where it should be. So this is the mindset that I believe Jacob has this new start, this new beginning. Perhaps he's dreaming of what this daughter of Laban would look like and which one that he would pick, which one that he would pick and, and how things would begin to move forward in this new life. And so when he travels wearily, finally getting to the land of Haran, he sees a well where shepherds have gathered with their flocks, but no one is moving the stone from the well's mouth. And he greets them, is this Haran? Yes, do you know Laban? Yes, we know Laban. How come you're not removing the rock from the well to feed your flocks? Well, we wait till everybody has gathered before we do that. The tradition was strong. And then they say, oh, look, there's Laban's flocks coming right now. And with the flocks and with the sheep of Laban is his youngest daughter, Rachel. And Jacob looks up. And sees Rachel. And it's. It's all over. His knees began to shake. 
His palms were sweating. All of a sudden, as he tried to talk, something was wrong with his voice. Something was leaping within his chest and butterflies perhaps running laps and racing in his stomach. He was twitter-pated. Some of you have no clue, but that's what happened to Bambi when he, Bambi saw Feline. If you've got grandbabies, you would know that at least. I understand that. Twitter paid it. It was love at first sight. In fact, when he saw her and hears the flock coming with her, he doesn't care what the custom is and what the culture is and how heavy the rock is. He's going to do something to show her that he wants to expend energy and a spirit of servanthood to help her. And he removes the stone from the well's mouth and feeds or waters the flock of Laban whom Rachel the shepherdess is watching over. Now he turns his attention to Rachel. And this is the scripture we read in our text. The scripture says that he took Rachel and embraced her. I imagine he swept her off of her feet. He put his lips upon her ruby reds. And kissed her. Lifted up his voice, not silently, lifted his voice and wept. What a sissy. No, that's romantic. He is so moved with emotions at how powerful this expression of love that he feels that he's not embarrassed or afraid to not only show her compassion with a kiss, love with a kiss, but to embrace her, sweep her off her feet, and then lifting his voice, weeping. He is overcome, he is moved, and he wants her to see it. Now, evidently, she's just as Twitter-pated as he is because face red. She gets out of his embrace and runs home to daddy. And she says this. You'll have to read between the lines, and we'll do that several times in this story, okay? She runs home to dad, and she says, uh, Daddy, I've met a guy. Dad starts cocking the shotgun. And she says, and you're going to love him because he's just like you, Daddy. I know she said that because that's what they all say. And Laban ran to meet Jacob, brought him home to his house. And there the scripture simply says that he served him for a month. But take a little imagination trip with me as the first day in the house of Laban, newly there. They have no means of communication that we so take for granted today. So the only news, no telephone, no, no internets, no worldwide webs. And so the only news that they could get was not radios or televisions. It's, it's people bringing news. And so Laban has not seen his sister Rebecca and that side of the family a long time. And he must be pumping Jacob for news. Tell me what your mama's doing. Tell me about your brother. How's your dad? Tell me about what's going on. And he wants to get news. But Jacob obviously is Twitter paid and has only has eyes for Rachel. Maybe Rachel sits down at the table and Jacob is so bold as to reach his 
foot underneath the table thinking no one will see and patting around hoping he'll find that dainty foot of that beautiful Rachel. Maybe he stepped on that size 12 beside him instead of that woman 7. Looking sharply at Laban. Oh, sorry, sir. Trying to hear what Laban is saying and having eyes only for Rachel. And then we find that he must have got up, no matter how tired he was from the journey, first thing in the morning, crack of dawn, Laban is still asleep, but Jacob has woken up. This is not Jacob. Jacob's not the guy in the fields all the time. That's his brother. This is the guy that hangs out in the tents and maybe is in his pajamas in the kitchen at 10 o'clock fixing biscuit and gravy. My God, that sounded good. It, it must have been something different because now he's up at the crack of dawn and maybe he's in the fridge putting together a few leftovers and a basket and a checkered red and white tablecloth and he's going to go out and spend time with the sheep. Not because he all of a sudden has a love for sheep, but he knows if he's spending time with the sheep, he's also going to be with the shepherdess. And he is so moved. He's got this first love, this infatuation, this head over heels, Twitter painted, that he'll do anything to spend time with Rachel. So the day spent using muscles he didn't know he even had. And weary and sore, he comes back to the table trying again to hear the words of Laban and be kind and trying that foot tapping again and a wink here and a look there and letting Rachel know he's infatuated. He's, he's bowled over. He is head over heels. The scripture says that the days came and went so quickly as they are beginning to court. Only a month has passed and maybe they have spent times under a Joshua tree or a sycamore tree and they've talked about their dreams And Jacob has told her, not only do I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 40 and drive a Porsche and have a huge mansion, but maybe maybe Rachel has said, you know what sounds good to me? is a white picket fence on a big green yard and a house that sits back there and... uh, You like to have kids? I want to have... Yeah, let's have... How many kids you want? Oh, 12! Let's have 12! But Jacob's also talking about the spiritual dreams he has. Let me just say this. This should be one of the first things you start talking about if you think of dating and courting. Because I have watched way too many people with a powerful calling and anointing of God upon their life hook up with someone that, yes, they were Pentecostal apostolic, but didn't have the same drive for God, and it stole their purpose, their anointing, and their power. You're talking about a frustrating place to live. Unequally yoked in dreams and callings and giftings. And so they shared their dreams and Jacob began to tell Rachel. My father had a covenant that was handed down from his father. A covenant from God. And God promised my grandpa Abraham. That he'd be the father of many nations. That all the entire world would be blessed. That if he would just walk with God, God would make him a father. That would be a city 
that was not made by hands that God would allow my grandfather. And when Abraham died, my dad picked it up and took that covenant. And I stood before my aged dad. And he placed his hands on me. And birthrights and blessings are on my life. He shared his dreams with Rachel. It's only been a month, the scripture says. And finally, Laban is like, boy, you're the hardest worker I've ever seen in my life. You must love sheep. Up in the morning, out. I tell you what I want to do. I'm going to put you on salary. Or I'll just hire you. Tell me your hourly wage. Tell me your salary. And it's done. You name it. And Jacob turns to Laban. I don't want an hourly wage. And I'm not looking for a salary. But what I want is the hand of your daughter, Rachel, in marriage. That's quick, Bubba. One month. But Laban realizes the connections. His sister family raised with the same type of mentalities. He realizes this man has proved not only the pious religious man that he is, but also that he's servant and has a good work ethic. And so basically, if you look at the scripture, it says Laban decided, well, I just assumed she married you as one of these goobers around here. So let's do it. Work seven years for me. And then, at the end of seven years, I'll give you the hand of my daughter, Rachel, in marriage. That's what he said. Seven years, and you get your first love. Seven years, you get your true love. Seven years after you've worked, if you'll work just seven years, you'll get to marry one of my daughters. And so, Jacob threw himself wholeheartedly in to this contract, this covenant. And he worked, worked his fingers to the bone, worked his brain to a frazzle. He, he worked and worked and worked. But the Bible says that the seven years seemed like just a few days for the great love he had for Rachel. He was so busy and he was so in love that seven years came and went and it seemed like just a couple of days too. But he's been marking every day off on the calendar. And this morning he wakes up and there's the last X on the calendar. So he goes to where Laban is and knocks on his door way before it's sunrise. And he says, Laban, get up because it's a great day. I've served my seven years. Now give me my wife, Rachel. Laban cannot believe how quickly the time has gone. And he goes to his smartphone and checks. And yeah, there it is. Seven years ago I made that promise. And so he begins to prepare a festivity. They will celebrate for an entire week. And much different marriages in this culture. And I'm going to be very general about it. But they would celebrate for an entire week where everyone would be invited that is clued in or connected to the wedding party. And they would come to eat. And they would come to drink. They would come to dance. They would come to celebrate. But the bride-to-be had to be veiled completely. She had to be hidden out of sight. She was not allowed to participate. And so for seven days they are celebrating what will happen. They are... They are having a festivity, a feast, a party, if you will. And the bride is nowhere to be seen. Indeed, 
the bride was heavily veiled from top of head to the bottom of her feet in what we would call the ceremony. The veil was not allowed to be moved in the wedding night. So Jacob wakes up the night after his first honeymoon night and now finally not seeing his beloved Rachel for seven days, he finally gets to rip that veil off so that he can finally plant a beautiful kiss on that beloved. And everyone here knows it's not Rachel. It's Leah. Leah, it's not Rachel, it's Leah, the older sister. And so Jacob reaches under his pillow and gets a 357. You have to read between the lines for this one here. And he goes to where Laban is and he says, Laban, me and you have got a big problem. And since you're on the business end of this 357, you have a huge problem. Huge. That was terrible. <laughs> huge problem. And Laban is trying to calm him down. And he was saying, uh, wait just a minute. We can work something out here. There's some things you have to understand, Jacob. That we have a strong custom and culture in the land. That we do not marry the youngest daughter before we marry the oldest daughter. Why didn't you tell me that a month ago? I'd have paid some dude in town to elope with Leah. We, we'd have worked something out. I'd have, I'd have called somebody from somewhere and we'd have, we'd have gone online and she'd have entered all kinds of dating sites. We'd have, we'd have made sure something happened. And the trickster, the conniver, has been tricked because be not deceived. Whatsoever you sow, you shall also reap. And so Jacob begins to calm down just a little bit. Realizing that the culture is different here. And Laban begins to try to plead with him and say, I think that we can work this out. I think if you really love Rachel, if that's really your first love, then, then fulfill Leah's week, honeymoon. And then I will give you Rachel also if you promise to work seven more years. Seven more years. Fourteen years he will work for the love of his life. And time will pass. He will not be the young man he was. He will be older. Some things that he appreciates in youth, energy, strength, vitality will start losing. He will not get to experience some of the things because of 14 years spent working. And so Jacob has to make a decision. Am I happy with Leah? Or do I want to commit even more for Rachel? Leah, Rachel. And perhaps he got him a notepad or went to the note app of his phone and began to write the pros and cons. Lee is a fine catch. 
You know, some people have mentioned this, that Rachel was beautiful and Leah was ugly. I, I, I do not believe that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible does say about Rachel that she was beautiful and well-favored. And I hope this ain't embarrassing, but that literally means that she was strikingly beautiful to look at. And she also had a great figure. That's what it means. But the Bible only says about Leah that she was tender-eyed and her name means weak. The name Rachel or Rachel in the Hebrew, it literally means a little sheep that has become the pet of the shepherd. That it is so loved and so cared for that he takes it everywhere, holding it in his arm or perhaps over his shoulder. And that's a, not just one of the flock, that's a pet sheep. Laban also has a meaning. The word Laban means white. White. Interesting. And so while I believe that Rachel was beautiful, it's my experience that when couples began to have children, it's like either they're all beautiful and handsome or they're all precious. I believe Leah had her fine points. And perhaps Jacob is writing his list and saying, hey, all the guys in town think Leah's the catch. And man, you know, I, I come off looking pretty good here with Leah. I've already got her, already paid for her. You know, I could go down to Kohl's and buy her a new dress and she'd be looking fine. I could, uh, you know, we could, she's a great cook. Man, that's going to serve me well all the days of my life. That woman knows how to put together a chicken pot pie. My God, I watch this with food. I'm hungry tonight, I guess. I, I, he said, uh, she knows how to keep the house clean, and I love that when I get home. Everything's just in its place. She's going to meet me with a sweet tea. I'm going to sit in my recliner. This is what Leah's all about. She's just going to love me and adore me, and maybe this ain't too bad. And about that time, Rachel comes in his eyesight, walking by. Like only Rachel can walk. Looks at him like he knows the look that she just gave him. Jacob, are you really going to be satisfied with Leah? What about our dreams? What about our promises? What about what we shared on the sycamore tree? What? What about all the times we talked? Are you really going to be satisfied with my sister? Or do you really want your first love? I was raised in the church. I slept under the pew and I was way too old to sleep under the pews. We didn't have nurseries and churches back then. You just sit on the back row and when your child misbehaved, you took them out and took care of it. So that when you brought them back in, they didn't want to cry much anymore. <clears throat> They'd already cried out because of what you had taken care of. So lots of times when mom was trying to get into the church service, and my stepdad was a pastor, my mom was pastor's wife, and three and four years old, she just tucked me under the pew and said, Go to sleep, Tim. I was good with that. So I slept probably my first three or four years of church. And then when I was way too old to be sleeping under the pew, I can remember 
power of God falling like it had so many times. And mom's shouting and dancing. Woo! Air flying everywhere. Bobby pins getting stuck in the heaters that were on the side of the church. Rolling out, finding what in the world is, oh, it's just church, and rolling back and going to sleep. But at five years of age, I stayed long enough to hear young evangelist, Steve Cole, preach a message. And I knew I needed to get my heart right with God. Five years old. Went down to the front. Mom knelt beside me. And she prayed me through the Holy Ghost at five years of age. It was, it was the most amazing experience that even now at 39, I look back at it. <laughs> it's not that funny, baby. I look back at it and realize that's the greatest thing that has ever happened to me in my life. It was March, and junior camp was starting in July, Georgia camp for juniors. And they only allowed six-year-olds to go there, but I was this close to six, my birthday, July 5th. And so they said, um, as long as your brother Anthony's going, he can kind of watch over you, and you're almost six. And since Sister Dudley knows how to pull strings, that's my mom. I went at school, I went to junior camp at five years of age and turned six just a couple of days later. But I remember that first night of camp, have no clue who preached. I'm sure he was the best preacher ever. But I remember him giving the altar call and this fresh experience in my heart. And as a five, almost six-year-old, I went down to the altar area and I lifted up my hands. And there, were, there were young guys, I, I guess they were watching over the... The, the kids, these were teenagers, they come gathered around me, held my hands up when they got tired, and come on, you can get the Holy Ghost, come on, you can receive. Somebody just say, Jesus, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah, and I'm reaching out for God. <laughs> and the Holy Ghost began to flow on me again. I was so excited, it was so awesome. Tears running down my face, and I finally wiped the tears from my little eyes and looked at them teenagers, and they said, Woo, you got the Holy Ghost. We're so proud of you. And I said, Oh, I've had that a long time. You know, two, three months. But it was something so real, I had to get it over and over. Next night of junior camp, we had five nights back in the day. Next night of junior camp, went down to the altar because I had to get the Holy Ghost. I didn't burn them boys. They weren't going to pray for me. But I had some mamas that gathered around me and they began to pray for me. Come on. Reach out with all your heart, young man. Just, and I'm praying. And finally I broke through the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues and finished wiping my eyes, opened my eyes. And they're hugging on me. And they say, we're so excited. You're speaking in tongues. I said, oh, I do that all the time. <laughs> what a snide. Wednesday night, I couldn't wait to go to church because I was going to get the Holy Ghost. Offended somebody else on Thursday night. And you know Friday night, the last night, I had to get a good dose of the Holy Ghost. So I was the first one on the altar. I can remember them times, six years old, seven-year-old. Back in the day, bro, we, we would do these uh, Sheaves for Christ kickoff rallies and fellowship rallies. 
where dad would load us up in that old blue van that we had and seven of us kids and mom in the front seat and the kids laying all over the place in the back three seats and and we'd drive from Fayetteville, Georgia where we lived to America's you know, get there after church had already started and everybody testified in the place someone had to sing from every church represented in the place they actually had our family I'm embarrassed they actually had our family singing and so mom thought it a great idea if we all wore yellow shirts and black pants this is the 70s guys and the singing was atrocious I think one or two of my siblings could sing the rest of us were just croaking like frogs it was it was pretty rough but everybody had to sing but I can remember going to them places and listening to that evangelist preach watching the way that he emphasized with the inflection of his voice and move of his hand and I'd sit out there and dream man you think God maybe could use me one day through my teenage years I started looking thinking I was missing something out in the world I was missing something but it wasn't out in the world I was missing my opportunities in church and so I older teenager now began to Experiment in things, get involved in things, and backslid, just totally away from God for three years. At 20 years of age, I found myself behind some bars with a past and a history. I'm embarrassed to tell you some of the things that I involved myself in, but destroyed relationships. Every commandment in the scripture broken. Ten Commandments. And thinking that God does not want me back. But I remember we were in a building program. Our church was at the time. And as they were building and moving, we were in a school. It was a theater of the school. And rows that came down, descending down in the stage up front. And I half expected when I walked into that school, I get struck by lightning. God just take me out for the... Awful things I had done and the person I had become. But he met me with grace. All I could feel was his love. And I was blown away. I was blown away. I hadn't felt this kind of grace and mercy and love from my parents. Is that okay for me to say? Not my siblings. No one had I found that would love me unconditionally this way and accept me just like I was. Again, I don't know what pastor preached. I just wanted him to give an altar call. And as soon as he gave an altar call, I ran down to the front. And they began to gather around me. And as I was praying, I I took my jacket off and turned to throw it over the first little row of chairs there. And Jack White was behind me, a former Sunday school teacher. And he laughed at me. He said, ah, you've come to do business, ain't you, Tim? And I said, I'm, I'm ready to get right with God. He prayed me back through the Holy Ghost that night. I was amazed that he would be so good to me. God would love me that way. Some ins and outs that happened in my relationships. But when I came back at 20 years of age, 
I remember going to a prayer room. A few months after praying back through. And there in the prayer room, I began to prepare my heart and my spirit for the service that day. And I couldn't break through. Finally, everybody else had left. I could hear the music playing. I'm still in the prayer room. And God began to deal with me about some callings long ago. I remember being an eight-year-old boy. He reminded me this in the prayer room. Eight-year-old boy underneath all of Mama's junk that she couldn't throw away in the basement. It was bad. They were, Dad had a, you know, they, they claimed that they came out of the Great Depression, so don't blame me, we can't throw anything away. So they had pews and boxes, and nobody had any clue what was in that basement, but it was packed floor to ceiling. In fact, there was a pew, open leg pew, and as kids, we learned that we could crawl under the pew and get to the end of that. Boxes on the front, boxes on top to the ceiling, but you could crawl under the pew. Then when you got into the pew, there was a table there, and you could squeeze your way into the table, and boxes all around it on top to the ceiling, nothing under the table, and then a hard right should get back to actually where the water heater was. (laughs) We had a water heater problem. There's no getting to that. We had to tear the house down to try to find it. And we'd get back there, and maybe it was a eight by six place, just a small alcove, we called it. I got that word from a Hardy Boys mystery, alcove. Just a little place that we were there, and we would go there to play church. And Betty, my older sister, would often be the song leader, and behind two boxes she had stacked up, she'd say, come on, let's turn to page 52. He's the lily of the valley, we'd sing. Heaven's Jubilee, 86. And we, we turned to what we, and we would just sing. We're playing church. And we would start dancing like mom, dad. I wish you could have seen it. We should have videoed that somehow. Mom, mom had a hairdo that was really high because in them days you'd put milk cartons on your head and wrap your hair around it. Some of you are like, what? And some of you are like, yeah. So the hairdo would be sticking way up high. Then when mom would get to feeling the Holy Ghost, she'd start dancing. She'd feel in her hands. So both of her hands are doing like this. And she'd start rocking back and forth. And her head would almost touch in the front. And then when she rocked back, her head would almost touch in the back. We was out there with rulers. Ah, six inches, four inches, six inches. So we're, we're in this little alcove and we're playing church. How many of you play church? No, I'm not talking about in church. I mean, you know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's rewind that just a few seconds. So we're playing church, and we danced like that brother who had no beat, no rhythm, but he was gung-ho. Ah, praise the Lord. And the place shook, you know, when he danced. We're, we're back there playing church. And then it came time for the preaching. You probably can't guess who the preacher was. Between my two sisters and me, I was voted pastor. And so I got behind them. I remember this so distinctly. got behind them two boxes. And I took my text. And my opening and closing and altar call was all one sentence. Jesus is the answer. I'd heard that somewhere and it sounded pretty good. But when I preached or said that that day, something moved into that room behind all of that boxes of junk. And the presence of God that we felt in church had moved into that little room.
This is not supposed to happen. We're not worshiping. We're not praising. We're not entertaining the presence of God. We're making fun. We're goofing off. We're playing. And so it felt so powerful in the place. I thought I'd just re-preach my whole message again. I said, Jesus is the answer. And it fell in that room so thick, you could literally get a handful of it put in your pocket for later. It was powerful electricity in that little alcove. I looked at my sisters and their eyes are getting wide and they're looking at each other like, what is going on here? So I preached the message one more time. Anybody ever preached a message three times? Preached it one more time, but this time I thought I'd use a little gravel in my voice like the evangelist did. I said, ah, Jesus is the answer. And it descended so thick in the place like a glory cloud. My sisters, like jackrabbits, were under the table out the pew. They were gone. And I found myself in a few seconds sitting there in the glory shikana of God. An eight-year-old boy loving it. God reminding me in the prayer room at 20 years of age, that's when I called you. That's when I spoke to you. That's when I put a spiritual anointing upon your head. In all of your running and all of your journeying, I'm still calling you. He began to speak to me right there in that prayer room that there would be a global ministry. You've got to realize how crazy that sounded to everybody but me. This backslidden boy that had ruined his reputation in all of the church. That there would be a global ministry. That they would travel all over the world. That the Holy Ghost would fall by the thousands. That I would literally see miracle signs and wonders and healings. And dead would be raised. And I, I am so in love with not only the love of God and the goodness of God and the presence of God. But he's dangling before me a... A value in the kingdom that I never thought I could have. Something that that He would use me to affect other people's lives and for their lives to be changed for the kingdom of God. And I finally got to a place where I embraced it. And I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll go to Africa and eat bugs. I'll I'll go to Mexico and fight Montezuma's revenge. Whatever you want me to do, I'll go, I'll do it. I walked out of that prayer room. It was late. Church had been going on for 20, 30 minutes. As I'm crossing the foyer, pastor came out of his office with a red-hot message in his heart and his spirit. Look on his face, headed straight to the pulpit. The reason why he was coming that late is because he didn't want to see and talk to anybody. Keep that anointing fresh upon him, not to be pulled from it. And I stopped him, of course. And I said, Pastor, I cannot let you pass me by. I have got to let you know that I have been called of God and I have said, yes! I don't know. I thought, I thought maybe he's going to jump up and click his heels and woo, you know, grab me and dance around. <laughs> no. He put a heavy hand on my shoulder and he said, don't tell nobody. He said, if you're really called of God, it'll be seen. So be the first one in the prayer room, he said. Be the last one to leave. Make you a spot that everybody knows on the front row is your spot. And if nobody else is worshiping, you worship. See if you can't be mature enough to dig out something when church is not happening on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and walk with God. Get your face in that Bible and know Him. He said, if you're really called of God, it'll be seen. 
And so for years, that's what I did. I started a Vesper service in Decatur, Georgia. Presbyterian, minister, uh, Presbyterian old person's home. But they let me preach Sunday morning service. And so we prayed a 106-year-old lady through the Holy Ghost. And baptized people in their 80s and 90s. I went to homeless mission after homeless mission through the kudzu of Atlanta. We preached homeless missions and we started Bible studies and started filling the pew up where we were at with people that were coming to God. And there was Brian and there was Mark and then there was uh, the different ones that would come with Bible studies and now reside us on the pew. I began to get frustrated that nothing was happening yet. And so, I began to apply for some jobs. And the FAA was needing some air traffic controllers. So I applied and went through the test. They told me I had been in the top 5%, done well in the test. And all they had to do was a background check on me, and then I would be an air traffic controller. So uh, I waited for the background, background check. And in two weeks, when they were supposed to have it done, they didn't get back with me. The month, they weren't there. Six months, they weren't. A year, they weren't. Eighteen months. It was two years. I guess I had a background, okay? <laughs> it was two years before they called me up and they said, Mr. Green, congratulations. You are an air traffic controller. We're going to fly you up to Oklahoma City. There's a furnished department for you there. You'll study for three months. And if you get through this, tale, we're going to place you in a place where you can, you know, direct airplanes and you'll be able, you'll do all this. So I'm, I'm said, oh, well, hey, the will of God, right? Out of nowhere. God's going to bless me. He's going to bless my family. So I kissed my wife, and now my two small children, Megan, the second was just learning to walk. Kissed them goodbye and flew up to Oklahoma City. Found a church that I could go to. Went to the schooling and began to give myself to the study. And found out it's pretty cool playing Nintendo with people's lives. I know you don't know what Nintendo is, but that's what it was back in the day. New language I had to learn. The ABCs weren't the ABCs anymore. It's Alpha Bravo. You have, to, you have to learn different things and different stuff and different language. And I was loving it. But every night I would come home to my furnished apartment. Miserable. And I'd talk to God like I knew how to talk to God. And the words would come out of my mouth and fall flat to the floor. Nothing there. I'd pray. I'd worship I'd go to church services and the church services. I could get in the prayer room and feel somebody else's anointing, but none for me. And when the church service started, I was dry. I couldn't find God anywhere. It's every day going to the school and every night trying to find the presence of God. And he wouldn't answer one prayer that I'm praying. And I'd get on the phone after trying to touch God and I'd dial that number. And a sleepy voice on the other side would say, hello. And I'd say, hey, luscious, it's me. What are you doing? And she'd say, sleeping. And I'd say, oh, I know, but tell me what you're doing. She'd say, nothing. What are you doing? (laughs) I don't know what's so special about that, but it made my heart feel better. We'd talk a few minutes and... She'd fall asleep, so I'd hang up, and 
I go back to pray and I couldn't find God anywhere. Every night, every night, every night. Until I'm the most miserable that I've ever been spiritually. And finally, one night I got so desperate, I said, God, I will be here all night. I will not go to school in the morning. I have got to hear from you. And just like Jacob, perhaps, my first love walked into that room. And God said to me, what about our dreams? What about that anointing I talked to you about? What about that love you confessed to me that you'd do anything, go anywhere? And I began to tell God how good Leah was. God, this is a good job. If I passed this and go into supervisory, I'd be making six figures in a matter of just... Now, that don't sound like much to all of you rich folk, but back in the 80s, that was a lot of money, at least to me. God, I could give tithes and help give offerings and build that family life. So I, I was just heaping it on Leah about how good this would be. And God was like, yeah, that's Leah. But I thought she was in love with ministry. I thought she was in love with the anointing I promised you. I thought she was in love with that power of God that would flow through you and minister and help and bless people. And when I began to see my first love all over again, I realized I'd never be satisfied with anything less. I got about 30 minutes sleep that night, got up and went to the professor that had been working with me two and a half months, only two weeks left. And I said, hey, I quit. He said, you can't quit. Everybody has washed out of the class. There's only a handful left. He said, you're doing so well. I'm telling you, if you'll just don't. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't you just go home today and come back in two and a half months. I'll put you right in the same place you were in the next class. You won't miss a beat because you've got to do this. This is important. I said, I don't want to be an air traffic controller. And he kept pressing me until finally I looked at him. I shouldn't have said it, but I said, I hate the FAA. I'm going home to be a preacher. They're probably still studying me after saying that. (laughs) And he just stepped back and walked away. I flew home because I was so homesick and had to fly back later to drive my car back home. Got back to my wife and kids and realized it didn't matter how long God still had to qualify me and prepare me. It didn't matter if I could make millions of dollars. It was no substitute for what I had fallen in love with, what God had promised me. And his Here's what I started to tell you. The difference between Rachel and Leah is Leah's just tender-eyed. Her vision isn't as good as Rachel's. The word Laban means white, which is a type of God. Deity, white. And I began to realize in the scripture that this is exactly the way God operates. That he will put something before you for you to fall in love with. Hey, want to be blessed of God? Want to be used with great anointing? Want to have healing? Want to save your whole family? And he'll put this in front of you. It is your Rachel. But then time will pass by and you'll shake yourself realizing, oh my goodness, I have become content and I'm settled with something of a lesser vision. 
This is not what God promised me. It's good. It's fine. It's blessing. But it's not what God promised me. And then he'll show up with this question like he is today. Satisfied with Leah? The blessings. The goodness that you have. Respect you have among your peers. Or do you still love that dream that we talked about? The prophecies and the promises that we spoke about. God speaks to Israel and says, I'm going to take you out of Egypt's bondage and take you to a promised land that flows with milk and honey. And they get out of the promised land. And at Mount Sinai, they feel like they don't want to get too close to God. And when they get to Canaan's land, now they've got another choice to make. Do you still want to pay an extra cost to go into Canaan's land where there are walls and where there are giants? Or are you just kind of satisfied that your back is not being beaten in Egypt anymore? And sadly... They wander for 40 years in the wilderness because what was promised them, what was spoken to them, what God showed them they could have, they got satisfied with Leah. A lesser vision. A weaker vision. God speaks to Simon Peter in particular so strongly. Let your nets down on the other side. And his nets are full of fish until they burst to break. God is speaking to him a typology that I can make you a merchant man, a businessman. And so bless your life until you'll have to buy more boats and more nets and you'll have more than you can even contain. Or do you want to be a fisherman of men? Paul, the prestige of being a student of Gamaliel and everybody believing and knowing that you're the greatest thing going. But when God knocks him off his high horse, blinding light, is that what you want or do you want to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ? God will show you. He will speak to us revivals. And he'll say, I'm going to do something on the campus. Unprecedented. I'm going to turn this entire city upside down. And we fall in love with the promise and the prophecy. And God begins to speak to us how we're going to have to have different campuses and all works. And we've got to prepare people and we fall in love with that. We know it's right. He speaks to us without any question that gifts of the Spirit are going to flow in our services. And people that are hurting and broken are going to come and receive healing and miracles and blessings and deliver. We know that He has spoken that and we have said yes. We realize there's a cost and we have put our shoulder to the wheel and we are working year after year, working year after year praying and fasting and we are doing what God said we had to do to receive what we fell in love with and then we look around and we say we're ready where's it at we've been praying we've been fasting we've been reaching out we've been holding on to the promise and it gets pretty good around here feels good in church here You satisfied with that? Or do you want the promises? I suppose nothing would be wrong with just being satisfied with Leah. It's like John 10 and 10 declare that Christ came to give us life. And for some people, that's enough. But there's another dimension. Life abundant.
Everyone will not choose this. Because when God begins to say, here's the promise, and you feel like you have fulfilled what you've got to fulfill for the promise, He tricks us because it's not the culture of heaven to give a vision that is great and greater until first you have married the lesser vision and become stable, content. And then God will say, how about it? Happy with Leah? Do you want Rachel? If your first love will be allowed to walk back in this room, I'm talking about your spiritual first love, and you could hear that vision, that prophecy, see that vision one more time. Let her look at you like only she can look. Let her talk to you like only she can talk. I believe there's no way you'd be satisfied with a lesser vision. Here's the promise, and I'm, I'm done. Laban, the typology of God, says this. You just commit to work in seven more years. And in one week's time, I'm going to give you, Rachel. And while you're paying the price for Rachel, you're already going to enjoy the benefits of her promises. So why God is speaking to us and demanding, this is the price you pay if you want Rachel. This is the price you pay if you want revival. We pay the price. And then seemingly we're tricked. But in reality, we're not. Because he will give you revival and harvest and anointing and miracles and healings right now. If you simply just promise, I don't care what the cost is. I'll pay it. If it costs me in sickness of my body for a healing ministry, I'll pay it. If it costs pain and suffering for my loved ones to be saved, I'll pay it. If it costs me having to put down some dreams of rich, wealthy, I'll pay it. And if you choose to pay the cost, whatever it is, then God will turn around right now and give you your first love. Would you stand with me? There's absolutely healing in this place today. There is absolutely impartation in this house today. There is absolutely a strong anointing for whatever your prophecy and promise is. Somebody just needs to ante up. I've weighed the pros and cons, God. And I don't care what it cost. I don't, I don't care what it cost. I don't care. 
It doesn't matter what it costs. If you're saying, I can have this. Take my life, take my breath, take my family, take my money, take, my, take everything I have. But give me Jesus. Oh, somebody's first love has just moved into this place today. And God is letting you dream them dreams all over again. Feel that anointing all over again. Hear that promise all over again. What you going to do? What you going to do? What you going to do? Yeah, you'll probably be saved if you just say, I'll hang out right here. It's already cost me too much. Probably. But somebody here will never be satisfied with a lesser vision. You want your first love. If you want to make that commitment, I'm asking you specifically to do this. Lift up your hands before you make one step. Both your hands up. Walk down to this front with a cry of hunger. With a cry of desire, with a cry of commitment down to this altar. And let heaven hear. <laughs> let heaven hear. Tell him what you'd give up. Tell him what you'd walk away from. Tell him how you'd give everything, everything, everything. <laughs> Come on, let that cry out. There needs to be an intercession flowing. Let that intercession flow. Pray in the Spirit and empty yourself out again. I know you paid the cost, but commit to pay the cost again.
I give my all to you withholding nothing. Take my life. Take my life. All right, now listen to me if you can. The prophecy and the promise is this. You make the commitment. Fulfill Leah's week. One week later, he's married to his true love. If you honestly have feel like you have prayed a prayer today, then I don't care what the cost is. I give you if you honestly feel like you prayed that prayer for the promises of God in your life, for the anointing of God in your life, for the revival that God's spoken to your home and to your church. I, just wave your hand. Just lift your hand up high and hold it there. 
All right, hands down. How many here want God to use you in healing? I'm going to speak impartation right now. If you need healing in your body, would you come down close to the front here? If you need healing in your body, all those that need a physical healing. All right. It's a long line all the way across the front. Now, everyone that lifted their hand just a few moments ago and said, I commit it all. I've dreamed of being used of God in healing. I've, I've asked God to use me in healing. I prayed and I fasted. And the Lord said, if I would commit myself and give myself, well, you've made that commitment. And maybe you've not been used as much as you want to, but your first love is here. You've made the commitment. So I want you that want God to use you in healing. Lift up your hands right now. I'm going to speak a word of impartation. God, of every miracle in healing that I have been so privileged to see by your mighty hand and what you have placed and given me as your anointed servant, I give to these that have their hands up. I loose an impartation of healing upon this congregation. That those that dream of being used of God and have prayed for God to use them in healing and have sought and fasted and prayed and sought your word, I speak an impartation to fall upon them even now by the power of the name of Jesus Christ. Receive impartation. Now you've received your impartation. Touch hands on someone. Touch, reach out your hand and touch someone here that needs a healing. And believers are going to pray and healing is going to flow. You want God to use you in healing? Come right now. There you go. Don't hesitate. Get on up here. There you go. Lay hands on somebody in the front here. Healing virtue flow even now. I lose healing. I lose healing. I lose healing. Yeah, believer, lose healing. That's it. I feel virtue flowing. That's it. That's it. That's it. Whoo! Jesus name. Jesus name. Loosed Jesus. He told Rodokoya. Healing flows upon your body even now. We receive it in the name of Jesus Christ. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Be healed, be healed, be healed. Be healed, be healed. Receive healing right now. Receive healing. Complete healing in Jesus' name. Yeah. Woo. Ha, 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 ha. Hey. Hey. If you came down for healing, 
and you feel a physical difference in your body right now. Just lift up your hands so those can see. Healing is flowing in this house. Healing is flowing in this house. Hey, God is using you right now. Hey, I've got two things more I need to do. Anybody here hungry for revival? I'm talking about a city turning upside down. A campus turning upside down. I'm talking about a revival that flows all across the metro. I'm talking about you ready for revival. You have prayed, you have fasted, but now you have committed whatever it takes. Lift up your hands. We receive revival right now. Revival of harvest. Revival of backsliders. Revival of loved ones. Revival of those that we're loving and reaching to. We receive that revival and that harvest. In the name of Jesus Christ. Somebody declare it in the Holy Ghost. Declare it in the Holy Ghost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, 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 Prodigals, we have prayed and we have fasted. And every week we have put your name in this jar and lifted it up before him. Prodigals, come on home. You're going to find acceptance here. You're going to find love here. You're going to find what you're wanting here. What you thought you were missing out there, you're going to find here. Somebody commit whatever it takes. I want the prodigal coming home. Last day. <laughs> Last thing that I feel to do in the Holy Ghost. Last thing I feel to do in the Holy Ghost. Now we need to hook up with a brother or sister beside us. And I want you to make this commitment to somebody. Make sure you're talking to somebody you can make this commitment to. And whatever you're